All right. There's a lot of reaction there to that interview I just did with Anjalia Potterai there. We had a full phone board, and I got lots of emails coming in as well, sort of for and against her. You know, what will the NDP do here if they try to stop her from running against EB? And I got a lot of people emailing me here supporting her. Oh, yeah, and I got people against her, too. I mean, I've heard from some NDP, longtime NDP party members who say, like, she hasn't done enough to connect with this party. She hasn't reached out to any of the MLAs. And it is a hostile takeover of the party. What is the party brass going to do? I think two things they're looking at is either outright disqualify her bid or they throw out a ton of her party memberships. Just like my guest Keith Baldry <laughs> pred- predicted that she that they might do. Because remember, early on in this thing, I was wondering, you know, would they disqualify her from running? And you said, well, wait a sec, they might just throw out a bunch of her members, and then she couldn't win anyway. Yeah, right? and that, that's exactly, I mean, the indication of that came in that letter from the NDP uh, to the Green Party yesterday saying they had conducted an audit mm-hmm. of the memberships signed up uh, that she signed up, and they found a number of instances of and examples of people Either quitting the Green Party with the express uh, purpose of t- sort of taking over the NDP, or just how do they know they quit? They were in the Green Party. Well, they've got, they've sent letters to people saying, "Can you prove you've you've?" <laughs> because a number of Green Party people have made references to the fact that they are in the Green Party on social media. Okay, and that's the evidence the NDP admitted it. They admitted it. <laughs> acknowledged that they, they were. So yeah, this is a real mess. Yeah. Uh, there's no question. I mean, the NDP sort of. Uh, Damned if they do, damned if they don't. I mean, if Abdurai were to become leader, which would be extraordinary, um, I'm not. I don't think she'd be premier because the caucus, uh, the lieutenant governor, only takes the advice of her first minister, which is the premier. And John Horgan's advice would not be to put her as premier. His advice would be uh, turn to someone like David Eby or someone else that the caucus supports. The caucus has to support the premier for that person to function as premier. So we've had two examples in BC's history recently where the caucus had to uh, go to the lieutenant governor or, or show, show the lieutenant governor that this person in, in the uh, 1990, I think it was Rita Johnson, the Socrates mm-hmm. actually had sworn affidavits from the caucus members. She had defeated Mel Cuvillier and I believe uh, Russ Fraser in a, in a vote in the caucus, uh, and she became the first minister. In the 1990s, to replace Glenn Clark, the NDP caucus chose Dan Miller, as the replacement, and he was the first minister that the lieutenant governor turned to. So in this situation, I don't think uh, Apadurai would be the person that the caucus would okay. turn to. Okay, let's have a listen to what she had to say to me here earlier today on the show, and here she is describing the NDP party officials sort of calling up her supporters and grilling them about their past political affiliations. Here's what she said. But it's far beyond the scope of spot checks. It's, it's thousands and thousands of calls. Um, <clears throat> we... There's um, mixed in with these standard spot checks that have a standard series of questions are um, investigative calls um, for folks that um, have been flagged as potential dual members of another party. And these calls are a lot more intense and pushy. Intense and pushy <laughs> calls. And she said thousands and thousands, yeah. which uh, kind of hard to believe that thousands and thousands of calls are actually made when you think about the physical requirements yeah. and timing for that to occur. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, the NDP is taking this very seriously. So I'd be very surprised if either her, her candidacy is allowed to stand or whether her memberships are allowed to stand. I think the party's going to argue that 
her whole campaign has put the party into some sort of disrepute and therefore um, not able to go forward. And keep in mind, political parties are private entities. They're not publicly traded companies. Yeah. Uh, there's no uh, there's no rule book here. They can basically do what they want, and they have to wear the consequences. And if if they if she's uh, terminated here, there's going to be pushback. But it's going to be pushback by a me- number of people who aren't members of the party anyways and don't support the party anyways. They're Green Party members. So I think the NDP is willing to take that heat to escape the more serious situation that would occur were she to be DB. I got an email from a party member here just over the commercial break saying, like, you know, he's been a member of the NDP a long time and he's talked to members of the caucus, so NDP MLAs, to say she's made no effort to reach out to any of these no, MLAs. No, no, no. She, so, uh, I've heard that from a number of MLAs. She's never communicated with the caucus. She didn't help out in the Surrey South by-election. Uh, they've never met her at any co- convention. And keep in mind, she ran federally. But the federal party and the BC NDP, even though technically they're all part of the same tent and everything, yeah. there is a real disconnect there. They do not um, communicate with each other to any great degree. Jugmeet Singh is a non-entity in the BC NDP caucus. The NDP caucus is a government caucus. And I've talked to... Well, well more than a dozen, at least 20 MLAs who are just saying no thanks uh, to her candidacy. So it would be an extraordinary situation for her to actually take over the helms of the party. But she would not be the leader of the caucus, I can tell you that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, I think, a big issue in politics is crime. And Mm -hmm. in Vancouver, we saw another wild and woolly weekend for Vancouver police over the holiday weekend with over like 1,200 calls and less than... Less wow. than 48 hours. Six stabbings. Stabbings, assaults, weapons offenses. You know, a guy shot with a crossbow bolt. I mean, it just was wild. I spoke to Sergeant Steve Addison about it this morning. And you see Kevin Falcon, the new BC Liberal leader, jumping all over this. Seems to be like a recurring theme here in the in the legislative session. Here's, here's a clip of Falcon in a video we put out yesterday, and they'll get your thoughts. But never have we seen things deteriorate the way we're seeing under the NDP. Four people a day in Vancouver being attacked by random strangers. Mother with her toddler having bottles thrown at them. People being attacked by machetes. Fatal stabbings in Yaletown. It just goes on and on and on. That's 120 people a month. Should I become the next premier of this province? We are going to make sure that our streets are safe. It's a good issue for him. Oh, it's a great issue for the BC Liberal. I mean, crime, being tough on crime is much more part of the BC Liberal DNA than the NDP which has uh, always traditionally been a little softer on that. So, yeah, this is a great issue. I've got to call him out this week about uh, this is the issue that's got the government on the defensive. It's a great one for the B.C. Liberals to run with. The House is not sitting this week. Uh, but when it resumes sitting next week, I think crime will replace health care, potentially, is the dominant issue in, in, in question period. And the other thing we're going to see with crime is the outcome of the mayor uh, the elections on Saturday. Yeah. There's a number of right. candidates uh, who are running on tougher law and order um, uh, platforms than others, and we'll see if they prevail with the voters. I have a feeling they will. Yeah, let's listen to uh, BC's Attorney General, Murray Rankin, who's stepped into this role after EB decided to run for the party leadership and he stepped aside as AG. So you've got a guy who's not been attorney general for a super long time. I don't think he handled the, handled the issue well last week. Maybe see what you're thinking, what you think, but here is, here is Rankin in question period under the sustained attack about growing crime problems. And here's what he had to say. I will end with where I started. The honorable member herself referred to the complexity of this problem. Simply, Arresting people out of, uh, out of the situation we know is going to be futile. We need to do so much more, and that is what we're doing. So we well, can't arrest our way out of this. 
Yeah, and then the NDP threw back at uh, Eleanor Storko, the new liberal MLA, who said the same thing in a in a Zoom call. Okay. So you know, a bit of cover there. But it was interesting. After Rankin in the House was answered some questions, uh, Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister, stood up and took the ball oh. and ran with it. And he's a much more uh, in-your-face performer in question period than Murray Rankin is. Rankin's well, that's why got, they call him the janitor, right? Well, he, he goes in and cleans, cleans up, up everyone everything. else's yeah. mess. And, and so, so Farnworth threw back at the Liberals the stats that were, occurred on their watch sort of thing, which is a traditional uh, uh, form of communication or, or theater in uh, question period. But uh, Rankin, I don't think, coming from the House of Commons when he was in opposition, not used to sort of the cut and thrust in question period here, particularly on hot-button issues. Yeah, and like when he said we can't arrest our way out of this, you just knew the liberal the liberals somehow turned this into a TV ad or something. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, uh, the liberals have liked to define the whole bail situation as catch and release, right? Yeah. Which is a nice catchy slogan. It infuriates the NDP and John Horgan. Now it's, it's just a bumper sticker uh, way of uh, describing things. It may be, but it is an effective bumper sticker, and but that's why the liberals will continue to use it. So when Rankin says we can't arrest our way out of this. I mean, is he technically right? I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. People are getting arrested over and over and over again. It doesn't make any difference. Well, the, the, it's not so much the arrest as the release. Yeah. The, uh, the bail situation, the rules set down by the Supreme Court of Canada and by fe- the federal government when it comes to bail uh, conditions, which seem to be very loose right now. We've reported a number of instances on Global where someone commits a very violent crime or outrageous crime and it's back on the street within a matter of hours and that's the frustrating thing here with many people rankin says he's going to be talking to his federal counterparts about this uh he does have the power under the crown council act to issue a special directive to crown council to change the the situation Uh, and that remains a possibility but we haven't seen it yet all right baldry's beat lots of phone calls here right to them jeff in surrey hi jeff go ahead Gentlemen, uh, I missed what you said at the very end there about uh, the NDP could is- issue a special amendment from the re- Supreme Court uh, ruling, which would uh, put a stop to the catch and release. Was that right? And is that uh, is that actually a, a, a legal thing they could do? No. I, well, I don't th- think the government's going to uh, disobey a Supreme Court uh, directive. But Murray Rankin does have, the, as Attorney General, under the Crown Council Act, can send a special directive to Crown Council. Not exactly sure what it would be. It may be to, to fight a little tougher when it comes to granting bail and not necessarily roll over hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, acceding to a bail request. Uh, maybe it just means get more argumentative and get tougher in front of judges. That's very interesting because, you know, one of the frequent talking points you hear from government on this file is like, look, the judges are independent. The Crown mm-hmm. is independent. The police are independent. We don't tell them what to do. But you're saying he does have some discretion. To Under put the order. Crown Council Act, it came up in the House last week where yeah. Mike DeYoung raised this as a, as a, a former attorney general himself, and yeah. Rankin agreed that he did have that power under that act, but no indication he's going to use that yet. But again, you can understand, uh, attorney generals are supposed to be uh, independent somewhat of government, right. and therefore the criminal justice system is supposed to be independent to a large degree from the attorney general. Yeah. So you had this extraordinary situation where Peter Juke, the head of the criminal justice system, the head of the prosecutorial branch, uh, writing a seven-page op-ed letter defending what's going on, saying there's really no big issue here. Then you had a report uh, commissioned by the government uh, with a former uh, police chief and a, a, a professor coming up with an assessment quite the opposite, that there is a serious problem, particularly when it comes to violent crimes, not not the general crime rate across the board, because in the pandemic, 
for example, B&Es dropped because people were working from home. So there were less vacant homes to break into. So that dropped. That's a major crime statistic, as is auto theft. But people were not driving their cars as much. They weren't driving downtown. They weren't driving to work. They were staying home. So there was less car theft and car break-ins. So you take those two statistics out, the so crime rate sort of remained flat or dropped. But as the authors of the of the last report noted, the rise in violent crime yeah, is right. extraordinary. Yeah. It's not we're not talking about these. This is random street assaults up thirty five percent in Vancouver in three years. Yeah. Right, Josh in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, yeah, you know, I I just kind of feel like what's the point? Like how, how demoralizing is for these police officers? You get a call, somebody's getting assaulted. You go, you arrest the person, you let them out the next day. Like a cop can take your car away for speeding, but you can commit a violent assault and get let out right away. That that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's totally backwards. I mean, something's got to be done. Yeah, yeah, I think and, something should be done. Go yeah, ahead. And, and the last government report, the authors quoted police officers for saying just that, that they felt frustrated yeah. that they keep arresting people and only to watch them released within a matter of hours. Yeah, and in some cases, hundreds of times, like literally over and over well, again. Well, I think there's at least several individuals who have <clears throat> at least 200 interactions with police. Yeah, I've heard of even more than that yeah. in some, yeah. some cases. Michelle in Vancouver, <laughs> Hi. Hi, there. Hi, Michelle. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it just seems, uh, you know, uh, the media sort of uh, resonates in the bubble chamber of we're all at risk and violent crime is running amok in the streets. And it seems to sort of align with uh, municipal elections and, uh, you know, police board elections and things like this. And, it, you know, I think that what he said earlier about just sort of taking a holistic look at crime and sort of looking at the realistic that uh, so that we can understand really what what the issues are and not just sort of fear monger. Okay, thank you. Yeah, well, I don't think it would be, well, I mean, fear mongering is always going to be part of the political culture on any number of issues. You just can't really separate that, that too. It's not as if we're suddenly in a danger zone at all times, but the reality is, I mean, I've known at least two people have been assaulted in Vancouver, mm-hmm. uh, random assaults. Uh, and we've again, we've run a number of stories of really t- terrible stories of people just randomly getting attacked. Mental health is a big part of this and addiction. And those are the other things that have to be addressed here. So it's going to be interesting how the debate changes going forward when it comes to the, okay. how mental health and addictions affect the crime rate. Squeeze in one more. Jerry in Vancouver. You got to go quick. OK, go ahead. Yeah, good morning. I'd just like to use a little humor this morning. Uh, you know, there's like 15 buildings in Vancouver. We have to get an answer for a question. Why does it take so long to understand how simple things used to be? Like the Peony, the Giza Temple, the, the parades up Hastings Street and all that. We had things going really good. How many mayors created this city? How many of them went to provincial? How many went from provincial to federal? Okay, Jerry, thank, thank you for that. I guess he's talking about the... The good old days. I'm not sure what he was talking about. The good old days? The good old days, I guess. I don't know. Thank you, Keith. Okay, talk to you tomorrow.